It's hard to believe that we're in uh, Lent already. It was so great to have everybody here on Ash Wednesday and be prepared for that. And here's what we're doing as we begin this new uh, sermon series. We're going to work our way through Holy Week. So today, we actually start with this, uh, uh, this passage in Luke where we find Jesus at this point in his ministry where he turns toward Jerusalem and he'll be making that journey. And next Sunday, uh, we're going to actually look at the first day in Holy Week, which is Palm Sunday. So we're looking at that period of time when he turns towards Holy Week until he actually gets there. And then what we're going to do each Sunday after that, we'll do uh, Palm Sunday next week, and then on the next Sunday we'll do Holy Monday, and then we're going to do Holy Tuesday and Wednesday and Holy Thursday, and we're going to go right on down the line until we uh, get to Easter. So we're really looking at Holy Week, and we want to understand what Lent means to us through that uh, Holy Week. So, and I want to remind you, in your, in your bulletin, there's a little set of sermon notes. There's three questions that we're going to be asking throughout this sermon series. They're in there, and there's just things in there. It'll kind of, it's kind of an outline of what I'm talking about today. If you want to make some notes, you have something to take along with you today. So we find ourselves today in a place where it's a turning point. It's a turning point in Jesus' uh, ministry. He turns towards Jerusalem, and he knows that when he gets there, He's going to be tortured and crucified. He's been telling his disciples this, and they, they don't believe it. They don't understand. He turns toward Jerusalem, and he knows when he gets there, it's going to be the Passover. And he has a plan. He's going to die at the Passover. We're going to learn more about that as we go through uh, this sermon series. But he has this planned out. There's a reason that this is happening. And the truth is, he's up in the Galilee, and if he would have stayed in the Galilee, he could have avoided it. But he begins that journey south. He knows what this plan is, and, and this is what he's doing. So let's take a, a look at a little bit of background. If you could put that map up there, Kevin, to start us off with. And, and here's really where we are. You know, Jesus could have avoided the, the crucifixion, and this journey that he's taking, and if you look at this, this is a layout of uh, the Holy Land. If you get anything from this sermon, here's what I want you to remember. That very top kind of uh, pinky section, that's the Galilee. <clears throat> if you look at Matthew and Mark, Almost all of Jesus' ministry is spent uh, in ministry in Galilee. He grew up there. That is where uh, he uh, did his learning and so forth. That middle part, that purple part, that's Samaria. Okay, so you have the Galilee, then you have Samaria. Then right below that, it's kind of that uh, bluish-green color. That's Judea. That's where the capital is. That's where Jerusalem is. Okay, so as Jesus, he's in the Galilee, and chapter 9, verse 51, it says he turns resolutely and he's going to go towards Jerusalem. Now, here's what happens in Jesus' day. We remember that middle area, the Samaria, uh, Samaria because we know about the Samaritans, right? Those are the people who, who when in 722, when the Assyrians came through and they conquered the northern kingdom Israel, they carried all those Jewish people away. There was a remnant there, but they carried them away, and they had them intermarry with <clears throat> Assyrians. That's how they actually got rid of a people in those days. Once they conquered you, they carried you off, and they had you intermarry with other people so they could actually eliminate a race or a, a, a nation by doing that. And then the Assyrians brought in, for the Jews who were left in Samaria, they brought Assyrians in and they intermarried. And what happened is they be kind of came half-Jewish. And then later in the 500s B.C., when the Babylonians took the southern kingdom away, took Judea away, they were eventually allowed to come back and rebuild the temple. And those, those half-Assyrian, half-Jews in Samaria, they said, hey, we want to help you build the temple. And the Jews said, no, we don't want your help. So there's a lot of resentment between the, the Jews and the Samaritans. So we have Galilee, we have Samaria, where the Samaritans live, and then we have Judea down below. So knowing all that resentment is there, what would happen when a good Jew would travel from the northern part of the Galilee down to the southern part in Judea to go to the temple on a pilgrimage or something? 
what they would do, I don't know if you can see it, but uh, below the Sea of Galilee there, there's a little green line to the right-hand side of Samaria. That was known as the King's Highway. When a Jew wanted to go from Galilee down to the capital city of Jerusalem, they would go across the Jordan River, go down through Perea, and then come back across the Jordan into Judea. Why? Because they would never be caught associating with a Samaritan. They would not eat with a Samaritan, they wouldn't drink with a Samaritan, they wouldn't stay overnight in a Samaritan's house, so that's what most Jews did, they did that. Now there is a road, you see that red road right down through the middle, that's the Ridge Road, there is a road there, that's the shortest distance, that's 76 miles. People would add days to their journey just to avoid Samaria. Now let me ask you this, when Jesus is in Galilee and he resolutely sets his eyes towards Jerusalem, what road, which road do you think he took? The Ridge Road. He goes right into the heart of it. And this tells us something about uh, the king that we have. And these are the three questions we're going to be asking during this series, and we're going to start asking it today. What kind of a king is this? What kind of a kingdom does he rule over? And what does he expect of us, his subjects? So that just gives us a little bit of history here. We, we know Jesus is in a place where, you know, he's going to go from uh, the Galilee to Judea, and that, by the way, is 76 miles. So that gives you some scale of what we're looking here. It's 76 miles. That's a three-day journey down the Ridge Road, okay? It takes him three months to get there. <laughs> this is a journey that he knew he had to be there. When he had to be there, he knew what was going to happen, and he had three months to do it. So the things that we're talking about today are things that happened in the three months from the time Jesus resolutely sets his eyes on Jerusalem when he takes off. Now, this starts in Luke 9. He gets there 10 chapters later in Luke 19. Luke is only 24 chapters long. And the author of Luke sets aside 10 chapters just for these three months of Jesus' life. And these are three months when we get some of the best teachings. We have some of the most memorable stories. It's all in here, sandwiched between the end of Luke 9 and the end of, of Luke 19. So that's the journey we're on today. We're, we're taking a look at this period of time when Jesus has three months to live and exactly what he does. So that's where we start. If you had three months to live, what would you do? If you had three months to live, who would you visit? What conversations would you have? What actions would you, would you display? You have three months to live. What is on your bucket list knowing what's coming? This is what Jesus had. The things we learn about today is, is exactly what Jesus had to do during this uh, period of time. So he sets out and he heads uh, into... Um, uh, heads into Samaria, headed for Judea, and there's animosity in this place where he is going. Now, one thing that we have to understand is not only is there resentment there, but the true king of kings and the lord of lords in uh, first century Palestine wasn't Jesus. We, we call him that because he's our king of kings and lord of lords. The king of kings and lord of lords in Judea in the Middle East at this time was Emperor Tiberius, all right? Emperor Tiberius ruled the land. And the Jewish people did not like that. There was animosity towards, the, uh, towards Rome, too, because they had to pay taxes. There was the Pax Romana. The Pax Romana meant that the centurions and the soldiers all had to be in, in Jerusalem. They all had to be throughout the, the Holy Land in order to keep that piece of Rome in place. And guess what? The, uh, the Jews, the Israelites, had to pay for that, so they were taxed. So they had tax collectors working with the Romans to do all of these things. Now, they had a long-awaited dream, a long-awaited uh, Messiah that would come. Messiah is basically Hebrew for anointed one. What was a king? A king was someone who was anointed. The king was the anointed one. 
So their Messiah was the king. Now, if you, if you translate that from Hebrew to Greek, it's Christos. So we have the Messiah in Hebrew, and we have the Christ, or Christos, which is the king in Greek. So you have king, Messiah, Christ, those are all the same thing. So Christ wasn't Jesus' last name, Jesus Christ. It was his title, Jesus the King. That's who, that's who he was. So this is what we find out here. There is animosity towards the Samaritans. There is animosity uh, towards those who were ruling at that time. But they knew, they knew there was this king that was prophesied to them that was coming. And between 15 B.C. and about 135, 140 A.D., there were dozens of false messiahs that came along who claimed themselves to be the Messiah. And they would take up a sword and they would go against Rome. And every time, Rome would come down and reclaim the land and crush them. The worst one they had, the worst uprising they had, there were a million Jews killed. A million. There's only one of these kings that came along that sought to lead a rebellion without a sword. There's only one of these kings that came along that sought to lead a rebellion that would overthrow the Roman Empire without a sword in their hand, and that person was Jesus. Jesus, our king. Jesus, our Messiah, our Christ, the anointed one for us. And if you claim Jesus as your king, you know, and this is, this is the theme throughout the Gospels, okay? If you claim Jesus as your king, these are the questions you have to be asking. What kind of a king is he? What kind of a kingdom does he rule over and what does he expect of me? These are the questions that we have to ask. And we find this, this is a downplayed story, but we find it throughout the scriptures, right? You know, uh, at the very beginning, when the wise men come seeking, they're asking, we followed his star. Where is this one born the king of the Jews, you know? And when Jesus comes and does his first message, what's his very first uh, sermon about? You know, the kingdom of heaven. What is the kingdom of God like? Well, the kingdom of God is in front of you. That's what he said. The kingdom of God has arrived. He preaches that sermon. In almost all of his parables, he's answering that question. The kingdom of God is like. And then we get to Palm Sunday, and what happens? The prophecy is fulfilled. It says right there, behold, Jerusalem, your king comes riding into your town on a donkey. Later that week, he's coronated. He finally gets his crown. It's just not a crown of jewels. It's a crown of thorns. And then they put that sign and proclaim it to the whole world, that sign on the top of the cross. And you know what it says? Here is the king of the Jews. Over and over and over again, though we downplay it. So these, these are very important questions that we ask. What kind of king is he? What kind of kingdom does he rule over? And what does he expect of his subjects? Everything we read in scriptures answers those questions. All right? And he wants to arrive in Jerusalem at the Passover because he knows, he knows what's happening. He knows what's going to happen there. So he enters Samaria. He goes right into Samaria, right in the middle, and he's headed down uh, that ridge road. And he sends his people ahead saying, give, give the Samarians the, the gift of grace. Give them the kingdom of God. Preach to them. Heal them. Cast out demons. And this is exactly what they do. Now, this is interesting, too, because Jesus goes into this area of Samaria, and he knows that these are the people that despise him, and he's supposed to despise them. He knows that these are the people that he has theological differences with, all right? There has been a lot of pain passed back and forth between these people. But Jesus is the kind of king that sets all of that aside. He says, I know we're in a theologically different place, but that's okay. I know we've hurt each other in the past, but that's okay. And he goes and offers them the grace anyway. So that's part of the question that we have to ask. What does that tell you about the kind of king he is? All right. He sets all that aside and he goes into Samaria. What does that tell you about the kingdom that he rules over? What it tells you is there's going to be Samaritans there. <laughs> so the other question we have to ask each other is, who are your Samaritans? 
And here's the thing, it's that person that you say, there's no way I could have dinner with that person. There's absolutely no way that I can sit down and have a conversation with that person. There's absolutely no way that I, I, they can be civil and I can be civil when we're in the same group. So if, if uh, in the 1970s you were in Ireland and you were a, a Protestant, who was your Samaritan? The Catholics, right? And okay, so if you were in Israel today uh, and, and you're a Jew, who is your Samaritan? The Palestinians. If you were born during the Civil War and you woke up in the South and you were a person in the South, who was your Samaritan? The North. You see what I'm saying? If you're in an election year in the United States and, and you're a Democrat, who is your Samaritan? And vice versa. You see what I'm saying? It's those people that you just, they, they never get it right. They just don't understand. This is the way it is, but they're always over here, okay? If you're the flaming liberal, it's the conservative. It, it, there's, a, there's a side to everything, all right? And here's what Jesus is saying. He says, well, the kingdom's a little bit different than that because someday you're going to get to heaven and you're going to look over and there's going to be your Samaritan and you're going to say, how in the world did you ever get in here? <laughs> and you know what? They're going to be looking over at you and they're going to say, how did God let you in? So what Jesus is saying here is he's setting all that aside, and he's saying, we've got to work on this now, because that's inevitable. That's going to happen, all right? So he's saying, you've got to work on this now. And it doesn't matter what side of a debate on, whether it's the debate in the United Methodist Church or the upcoming election, you've got to settle that now, and you've got to get along, because there's a lot more important work to do than figuring out that you're right all the time. That's what Jesus is doing right here. He's setting all of those things aside, centuries and centuries. So what Jesus does is he goes to them, whoever your them is, and he offers them this kingdom of God. He offers them the eternal life and a way to get into heaven. Okay, and we need to start figuring this out right now, and that's what he's telling us. So he goes into Samaria, he goes there. Now, some of the stories that you find in these chapters, Luke puts in there, and they're all part of the trail, but they're a little geographically out of, out of sync. He first ends up, uh, we find him at the house of Mary and Martha. And what we have with Mary and Martha is, first of all, a, a good rabbi would never go to the house of two women. You just wouldn't do that. So he goes to the house of Mary and Martha, and he goes inside, and he starts preaching <clears throat> and teaching. And, and there's a whole bunch of people who come around to hear him preaching and teaching, and Mary, one of the sisters, is sitting at his feet. The scriptures tell us that Mary was sitting at the feet of Jesus. Now, here's what you have to understand. Anytime someone sits at the feet of the master, they take on the role of disciple, okay? Mary is taking the position of disciple. Martha is in the kitchen, and Martha is taking the socially responsible role of a woman at that time. Now, we've talked about this before. Unfortunately, women at that time were not much more than property. That's how they were, they were treated. They had a role in society, Martha was in the kitchen. She was making those little sandwiches and triangles, you know, with the salad and everything inside. She was getting something to drink. She was doing all the stuff that the women do. And she knows that Mary is in there sitting at the feet of the master. And as she's doing this, the pots and pans are getting louder, you know. <laughs> she's letting them know she's in there doing it all by herself. And Mary's in the wrong place. Eventually it becomes too much for her, and she goes in there, and she interrupts Jesus' teaching, and she says, Master, tell Mary to get her butt back in the kitchen because I can't get all this done without her. And what she's saying is, I've chosen the place where I'm supposed to be. She's outside of her role. She shouldn't be doing this. And Jesus turns to her and he goes, Martha, Martha, Martha. You all thought it was the Brady Bunch that came up with that. Marsha, Marsha, no, it was Jesus. Martha, Martha, Martha. Mary has chosen the better choice. This will not be taken from her. And what we have to understand right here he obliterates the social norms, and we should be thankful for that. He says a woman can be a disciple, and that won't be taken from her. 
Everything changes from here on out. And here's the sad part. You know, Martha, probably a year later, it's after the crucifixion and the resurrection, a year later, Martha's got to be thinking, I had the bread of life in my living room. And I was making those little sandwiches. There's a realization at some point. But we need to be thankful that Jesus obliterates those boundaries. And, and he says anybody can be in ministry. Anybody has, has access to the anointed one. And that's what we hear in, in the first scripture from the morning, this morning. You know, when Paul says there is no Jew or Greek, no male nor female. He includes us all in there. And, and from that time on, other women are included in this. You know, we have all these women welcomed into ministry. You have the one who weeps at Jesus' feet. We have the woman who anoints Jesus. We have the, the Samaritan woman at the well, right? And they get into a religious uh, theology discussion. Remember that? He takes this woman makes her the very first missionary to the Samaritans, right? And then you have Mary Magdalene. She's the first one to witness the resurrection. She's the first one to proclaim, proclaim the resurrection. They take a very, very important role. Women take a very important role. That's the first thing that he does. The next thing that he does is he heals the sick. Now, here's what we find out about Jesus. During this period of three months, he's constantly interrupted. He moves on, and, and some person will come up to him, a man that has been mute all of his life and can't speak, you know, and then there's somebody that comes along who's crippled or has a bad hand, and he immediately just heals them. And what we find here is that Jesus knows that it's in the interruption where God does his best work. You know what that's about, right? We're, we're running around, we're doing a million different things, we're so busy, and there's an interruption, and we're like, I just don't have time right now, you know? And then later you think back about it and you start wondering, what did I do? Jesus always pays attention to the interruption because he knows that's where God is profoundly revealed in his ministry. So we have all these, all these stories. There's the crippled woman that comes in during the church service and she comes in and she's all bent over, you know, and she's coming up like this. And Jesus is free right in the middle of the sermon. I'm not encouraging you to interrupt sermons, but I'm just saying. She comes in and he stops. And he goes over and touches her, which a rabbi would never do, but it's on the Sabbath, it's in church service, and she's healed right there. And everybody sees her straighten up and give praise, you know. And the Pharisees are, oh boy, they're so frustrated. And then after that, uh, later Jesus goes to the Pharisees' house for dinner. And they're at the house and they're seated at the meal, they're having dinner, and there's a knock at the door. And a man comes to the door and he has dropsy. Today we would call that severe edema. It's a swelling of of fluid under the skin. And the skin is swollen and it's like it's burning. He's in so much pain and and he asked to be healed, and, and Jesus turns to the rabbi, the Pharisee, and says, Rabbi, is it okay to heal on the Sabbath? There's no answer. So he turns and touches the man, and everybody witnesses this healing where the swelling goes down, and, and the man is healed. These incredible things happen over and over. He runs into the ten lepers. You remember that story, the ten lepers? Ten lepers say, hey, Jesus, can you help us? He heals all ten, and only one come back to get, comes back to give thanks. And Jesus makes a point of saying, the one that came back was a Samaritan. See how he's doing? See how he's doing this? He's, he's lay, leveling all the playing fields. And there's always the Pharisees who get it wrong. The Pharisee who sees the woman uh, being healed in church is disgusted because how dare she come in here because she can't heal on the Sabbath. And then there's the Pharisees whose dinner was interrupted. How dare he come in here at this time? And they actually say, if you, if you need healed, don't come to the synagogue. It's crazy what's going on here. This drives Jesus absolutely crazy. The Pharisees miss the fact of what's happening here. They say that you shouldn't work on the Sabbath. You know, this is amazing. Jesus is surrounded by all of these people who need 
the church so bad. They need healing so bad. And all the Pharisees can see is the rules that he's breaking. You would think they'd be cheering of what's going on in those rooms. And, you know, we have a problem with this today. We have to be, we have to be, we have to get this point, you know. The Pharisees were the ones that they thought themselves so righteous and holy, they separated themselves from everyone else. And we have a way of doing that, that we have to be careful. We, we in the church have a way sometime when we're dealing with people outside the church, that just in the tone of our voice and how we say things, it's a little condescending, a little judgmental. And the message that it gets is, the message the other person gets is, you're not quite there yet. I know you have some work to do. You know, it's, it's that kind of tone. Jesus apparently doesn't have this. The, the tax collectors, the sinners, the prostitutes, they, they can't stay away from him. They can't get enough of him because when they were around him, they wanted more. They wanted to know more. However he was dealing with them, he made them feel comfortable. They were not fearful that they would say something stupid or wrong and get chastised for it because it didn't matter to Jesus. So if that's the kind of king he is, what are we supposed to do? We need to be very careful. We need to be those kind of people. We win them over with a love that, that shows them what kind of king we, we follow. And these sinners and tax collectors that are out there, they're, ju they're just broken people. They're in here, they're out there, they're everywhere. And Jesus made them want to be more than they were, and that's what we're called to be. That's what he expects of us as his subjects. And, and the reason I, I tell you this is because this is people that we know. There's people you work with, there's members of your family, there's people in your neighborhood, and all of them are not here. They're not in church. And you know something? I don't even need to preach to them. They know I want them to be in church. But my prayer is I, I pray for them and I pray for God to give me a spirit that can help me be the person that reflects that love in a way that they see Christ, not Tom. And maybe they'll come. Maybe they'll be here. Maybe they'll, they'll show up. And that's where we are. We, we really have to understand that. We have to, we have to get that. Okay, so during this time, you know, what, did, what was Jesus teaching? He teaches a lot of things to us. He teaches, you know, we hear um, uh, stories about the uh, Pharisee and the tax collector. There's this wonderful line in Luke where Jesus says, uh, Luke says this, to some who are confident in their own righteousness and look down upon everywhere else, he told this parable. And he launches into the parable of the tax collector and the Pharisee. You remember that? They're praying in the temple and the Pharisee's there. Oh God, you are so fortunate to have me on your team. I teach scripture and I tithe, and I'm not like him, <laughs> you know? And then there's the tax collector over here, and the tax collector can't even look up, you know? The Pharisee was looking up to heaven, the, the tax collector can't get the, uh, his eyes off his shoes. He's like, oh, have pity on me, a sinner. I've done nothing good. How could I ever receive the grace that you, you know, all these things? And then Jesus asked the question, who walked away from that, uh, that prayer justified? And we know the answer is the tax collector. You know, there's so many teachings here, so we have to ask ourselves, what kind of king is he? What does he expect of us? You know, what kind of kingdom does he have? The kingdom that he rules over is not a place or a people. It's the human heart, okay? And what he expects of us is to be humble in our interactions with each other and love God with every, every bit that we can. 
These are wonderful, wonderful teachings. Then he gets on to teaching about money. There is so much said in these 10 chapters about money. But you know, when you talk about the teaching about money that Jesus does there, it's not about give 10% to the church, tithe here, be charitable. No, it's all about our relationship with money and our stuff. He does a very good job here. He talks about this, and there comes to a, a point in it where somebody in the crowd yells out, hey, rabbi, tell my brother to give me half of the inheritance. And Jesus backpedals a little bit. He says, well, I don't know, dude, you know, that's really not my bag, but I will give you some good advice. I think you need to be uh, on guard for all types of greed because the truth is this, and he gives this this one verse, and if there's ever a verse that you need to, to really memorize, it's this one, Luke, 15, Luke 12, 15. Jesus says, your life does not consist in the abundance of your possessions. And then he moves on. He gives, a, he gives that one line. And it's like, whoa. And all of a sudden we realize the people in first century Israel and the people in 21st century United States, we got the same problem. Totally different economic systems, but we got the same problem. We have a tendency to take care of ourselves ahead of everything else. We have a tendency to be a little bit greedy. And what he's saying is, he's saying, hey, your life doesn't consist on your address or the type of house you have. Your life doesn't consist on the car you drive. Your life doesn't consist on the country club that you belong to. It has absolutely nothing to do with your possessions. It's a wonderful, wonderful thing that he does. He says your life is much more of this. And when we think it is these other things, we get into a lot of trouble. We get into a lot of trouble. So what happens is Jesus is telling these stories and these parables. He's healing people. He's getting interrupted. He's doing all these things. And he's making his way down through Samaria. And he ends up at Jericho. Do we still have the map up there? No, Jericho, if you put the map back up there, Kevin, Jericho is just at the very top of uh, the Dead Sea. It's, it's right there. It's the last city above the uh, Dead Sea, kind of center up where the green trail ends. And Jesus is about to walk into Jericho. Now, here's the important part. The next day is Palm Sunday, okay? This is the Saturday before Palm Sunday, and here comes Jesus into Jericho. Everybody knows he's coming because they all know these stories of the past three months and what he's been doing in Samaria and other places. And here he comes. He's coming into Jericho. So hundreds and hundreds of people are gathering, waiting for Jesus to come. And they get together. Why? Because they think he's going to do a trick or a miracle. He's going to, he's going to heal a lady who was bent over. He's going to have a man talk who couldn't talk, or he's going to collect the edema, uh, correct the edema that a man had. It's going to be a miracle. So they all gather around, and here comes Jesus, right? And there's this one little guy. You know his name. Zacchaeus, right? He was vertically challenged. That's what we say in politically correct terms. He was short. He was the chief tax, he wasn't just a tax collector, he was the chief tax collector in Jericho. He was the chief sinner in Jericho. He had everything that everybody else wanted. He had wealth beyond imagination for these people that are gathering there. He had it all. His life was the envy of Jericho, except for one thing. He's got a hole in his heart big enough for the Philadelphia Eagles to walk through. Something's missing. And he's got to see Jesus. So he comes up, and, and the fact that he's short, he's behind this crowd, and he can't see, and he's trying to get through the crowd. And you know what the people are doing, right? They're going, get out of here, Zacchaeus. You're a tax collector. You don't belong here. You think Jesus wants anything to do with you? Right? So he can't get to the front, but he sees this big sycamore tree at the end of town, and that's, Jesus is going to have to go by there. He says, if I can get up there. So he runs down to the sycamore tree, and you know he's dressed nice because it's Zacchaeus, right? 
He's got the shoes and, and he's got the jewelry. He's got everything. And he scurries up this sycamore tree. How silly does this well-dressed man look sitting in a sycamore tree? <laughs> Can you imagine that? So here's Zacchaeus. He's sitting in this sycamore tree. He just has to get a glimpse of Jesus because he's got something missing in his heart. And here comes Jesus, right? And all these people are waiting for the miracle. They're so excited to see Jesus. They're waiting for the miracle. And he's walking closer and closer to Zacchaeus. And Zacchaeus' heart's like, oh, my gosh. You know, and Zacchaeus saying, holy cow, he's coming straight for the tree. And his heart's beating even faster. And Jesus gets to the tree and he looks up and he goes, Zacchaeus, what are you doing? Come on down. I'm going to your house this evening. Can you hear the audible gasps in the crowd? Now, here's, here's what you have to understand. The next day, Jesus is going to go that 16 miles over the Mount of Olives, and he's going to descend to his death in Jerusalem. This is the last night of his life before Palm Sunday, before Holy Week begins, and he chooses to spend it with the chief sinner of Jericho. And all those people who were gathered around came to see a miracle. They saw it, and they didn't even know it. Because in that moment, when Zacchaeus comes down and he says, I'm going to give half of everything I have to the poor and I'm going to give back to those people I've cheated four times what, what I cheated them out of. And then he says, please, Lord, come into my house. At that moment, that was the miracle. Because at that moment, Jesus conquered Rome. Jesus conquered Jericho. The chief representative of, of Rome in Jericho at that time was Zacchaeus. And Jesus never picked up a sword. And he conquered Rome because at that time in Jericho, the poor had something to eat. And those who had not been treated justly had been returned everything fourfold to them. That's the kind of king we have. That's the kind of kingdom that he rolls over, and that's exactly what he expects of us, and that is to act humbly, humbly, and love God with all we have. What kind of king is he? He's the kind of king that seeks out sinners and tax collectors and Samaritans, seeks out you, and he seeks out me. What kind of kingdom does he rule over? He leads a kingdom not with a sword, but with love, and that kingdom that he rules over is our hearts. And what does he expect of us? He expects us to just act humbly and love God with all that we have and to help the poor and to be there for those who are broken and in need, to be the neighbor that we can be and to find those lost sheep and bring them back into the fold. And for that, we can be thankful. Let's pray.